It's a principle in sales that you highlight the benefit or benefits of a product or service. You don't bring attention to any negatives in sales or just how costly that product would be. If I'm selling a Jeep, I don't highlight that Jeep has the worst reliability ratings out there. (laughs) Sorry, Owen. I highlight just how fun it is to own a Jeep. And it is fun when it's not in the shop. According to this world's opinion, as one has said, Jesus was a terrible salesman. Speaking to his 12 disciples in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26, Jesus presents he, he holds forth true discipleship. What does it look like to, to come after me? What does it look like to come after Jesus? Perhaps Jesus would tell His 12 disciples that they're going to live their best life now. Perhaps Jesus would tell His 12 disciples that they're going to be healthy and they're going to be wealthy and they're going to be prosperous. That would sell. Perhaps you'd give them any number of messages. But right now, at a crucial juncture in the ministry of Jesus Christ, right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ of God, Right after Jesus explains that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected, to be killed, and then rise on the third day. At this moment, at a crucial juncture in this book and in the ministry of Christ, Jesus highlights the cost of following Him, the cost of discipleship. So as I read our passage, and I want you to turn to that place if you're not there yet, Luke chapter 9, find verse 23. As we read just verses 23 through 26, I'd ask you this question, how's this for a sales pitch? Verse 23, and... He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Sign me up. What does it look like to repent of your sin and to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? What does it look like when Jesus Christ is the Savior of your life, the Lord of your life? What does it look like to be a true believer? What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to come after Jesus? This is our answer. True discipleship, being a Christian, looks like Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Following Jesus Christ is costly. The cross before the crown. Following Jesus Christ is costly, the cross before the crown. And this morning, we're going to get right into it, and we're going to unpack, I think, this hard-selling truth from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to try to unpack this as best we can by asking two questions and trying to answer them this morning. Number one, what does true discipleship look like? What does true discipleship look like? In the answer to that question, there are three connected realities in this passage, three connected realities about discipleship. The first reality about discipleship is this. It consists of, number one, self-denial. Self-denial. Look at it in verse 23. Jesus said, and, so he's continuing uh, what in the context, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, here it is, number one, he must deny himself. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. If you want to come after Jesus, you've got to deny yourself. When you first came to Jesus. Every, for every one of us in this room that's a believer, this is how we came. We denied ourselves. And if that hasn't happened, we haven't really come. Here's what I mean. Repentance from sin and faith in Jesus, that conversion, turning from sin to Christ, it is saying, in myself, I find nothing good to offer God by which he says, I see that, I like it, I'll save you. Denying yourself is saying, in myself, I am too broken to save myself. In myself, I'm too helpless. In myself, I'm too hopeless. I'm too sinful, and I, 
I deny myself by saying I cannot save myself. I turn from that. I turn from my self-salvation project, being more sincere than everyone else, trying to do enough so that God would, in the end, save me. If you have come to Jesus the very first time, you have denied yourself. You've said, I can't do it in my own resources. I need you, Jesus. You've got to forgive me. I, I, I don't have the righteousness. I'm bankrupt. I need the righteousness of you, Jesus. I need your righteousness. I need you. I, I, I'm done. Save me, Jesus. That's what it looks like to become a Christian. This is the entrance into a life of discipleship. This is self-denial. And this is the very beginning. This is what saving faith looks like from day one. But the self-denial is, is not just that passing out of death to life, that first repentance and faith by which we entered into eternal life and were adopted and justified and all of that. It's a life of self-denial, which makes sense because that's how our life began. We are always broken. We are always depending upon Jesus. But this is the question of our passage. What does a life of discipleship, a life of self-denial, look like day to day? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. The word that is translated deny yourself is a very strong word. It could be translated disowned. So I want you to remember Peter, the Apostle Peter, after Jesus was arrested, after the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter at least has the guts to follow him into the darkness, into the kangaroo trial, into that courtyard sitting down by that charcoal fire while Jesus is in being tried. Well, he's there and warming himself in the middle of the night and He's asked a question, are you, wait a minute, I think I recognize you, are you one of them too? There's a number of people that asked him that question three times. One of them was a little girl, a little servant girl, asked him the question. And Peter disowned Jesus Christ. Strong word. I don't know the man. This is our word here. A disciple disowns his self in order to follow Jesus. He disowns his own confidence to save himself. He disowns his own ability. He disowns his own righteousness to offer before God. He disowns his own plans and purposes. He disowns his sinful self. It is so radical, this self-denial that we could call it what the Bible calls it in a life of discipleship, dying to self. So I don't want you to think of some sort of external self-denial in Christianity, like self-denial here is refraining from buying a hot tub, or self-denial is refraining from a frivolous purchase, or self-denial is refraining from excess, like one would refrain from having you know, a piece of French silk pie, or something like that. Perhaps God doesn't want you to have a piece of French silk pie. That's between you and God. But don't... It's much, it's much more radical than that. I want you to listen to one pastor theologian that really helped me here. Let me just quote him. Quotes, 
To deny ourselves is to behave towards ourselves, to behave towards ourselves as Peter did towards Jesus when he denied him three times. The verb is the same. He disowned him. He repudiated him. He turned his back on Jesus. Self-denial is not denying to ourselves luxuries such as chocolates and cakes. It might mean that, he says. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves. Now listen to this. Renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny oneself is to turn from the idolatry of self-centeredness, in quotes. To be a Christian is to put away self, self-love and self-direction and self-satisfaction and self-independence and self-realization and understood correctly, self-esteem is put away too. Self is crucified with Christ. I like what the Heidelberg Catechism says. And I think it's ironic that it's an answer to a question. The first question of that is, what is the only comfort in life and death? Listen to the answer. Only a Christian can find this comforting. Here's the answer to that question. Quotes, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Or, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So number one, what does it look like, true discipleship? It looks like self-denial. Christian, this is a life. So let me ask you, what are you holding for yourself and not allowing Jesus to touch? What is it? The second reality about true discipleship is that it consists of suffering. It consists of suffering. Verse 23, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, number one, he must deny himself, number two, and take up his cross daily. Now, we need to understand Jesus is using the C word, the word cross, to Jews, take up his cross daily. We need to understand just how horrific and scandalous and even disgusting the word cross would be to the ears of Jewish men. For us, the cross just looks really nice backlit. Or the cross looks really shiny and golden hanging on our ears or around our neck. 
But to the Jews at the time of Christ, the cross was an emblem of scandal, an emblem of shame. It would be like having a hangman's noose backlit up there. Why? Crucifixion was the most cruel method of execution invented in human history, and it was perfected at the time of the Romans. And Jews would be all too familiar with the groans and the blood and the shame of the insurrectionists crucified and lined up on the roads and they're traveling. Now listen, have you ever seen something, hopefully not intentionally, but have you ever seen something so horrific, some sort of bodily torture or mutilation that you just happen to see that makes your soul revolt to the point you have a visceral response from the gut? That is the feeling of the word cross in the Jewish culture. It was a symbol of shame. Take up your cross daily. Now, in that day, the criminal, the condemned man who was going to be crucified would be forced to carry and take up his own cross. He'd be forced to carry his own cross, to drag it through the city, outside the gates, usually along the road so everyone could see and be warned to the place of execution. It was a spectacle. It was shameful and there was suffering. Now listen, the disciple of Jesus Christ volunteers for this. The disciple of Christ is willing to even go to death for the sake of Christ. Only Luke adds the word daily here to daily take up the cross. The Christian life is a daily taking up of the cross. The Christian life is daily having a cross on your back. It's a recognition, it's a willingness to identify with Jesus and the things that He said that He was going to go through, to identify with Him the spectacle of it, the shame of it, to endure the hostility of it, the weight of it, the rejection of it, the reproach of being connected to Christ, the reproach of it daily, even to death if necessary. Now, you can only die once, so you're not going to die physically every day, but it's a will. So it's a mindset, a daily mindset, taking up your cross. It's a readiness, it's an understanding, it's a daily taking up. It may not come to death each day, it's a mindset. To be ready to go to death for Jesus. Sales pitch. How's he doing? This is discipleship. This is Christianity. We have to be careful with what we call our crosses. In this specific context, it's not all suffering. Certainly all suffering is like gold that refines and removes the dross of sin and brings purified faith to the surface and changes us in the image of Christ. All suffering is like that. We've, we understand that. It's, but in this context, the cross is not all suffering. It's not your annoying boss or your unresponsive husband or 
lack of a pay raise or a certain illness. The cross in this context is following Jesus Christ in the way of suffering for His sake, taking the narrow way. It's easier to preach this passage maybe to the suffering Christians in Iran or Iraq or But this is just as true in Iran or in Lakeville as it is in Iran. This text means the same. Now listen, if you refuse to put the pronouns on your email and it costs you, that's taking up your cross. It is. It will cost you. To do the right thing for the sake of Christ in your business. When your boss wants you to cut corners and it costs you, that's a cross. To refuse, kids, teens, to refuse to watch that movie, to tell that joke with your friends because you love Jesus and it costs you, that is a cross. To stand for the truth, to take the gospel into the marketplace of ideas, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to bring it in there, to the marketplace of philosophies and ideas, to bring it right there, and to be laughed at or scoffed at, that's taking up your cross daily. Will we be able to live out this in our lives as Christians in Lakeville? Come on. Yes. Without a doubt, the question is, are, is our mind, are our minds set on that? Are we willing? And in what ways is Christ calling you to take up your cross tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday daily and follow Him? But it's a reality of discipleship, suffering for the sake of the name. Number three, the third reality about discipleship is it consists of, verse 23, submission. Submission. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Okay? Now, in being a Christian, a relationship of discipleship, we are not the leader. We are the follower. Jesus is the leader, we're the follower. He's the teacher, we're the learner. A disciple follows and learns from another. To be a Christian is to be a Christ follower. It's not get your fire insurance and then live for yourself and maybe get the second blessing of true discipleship. Maybe, maybe not. That is not Christianity. If you're signing up for saving faith, In real Christianity, you're signing up for this passage from day one. So, let me make this practical. You follow Christ. If Christ goes to the left, which way do you go? If Christ goes to the right, or let me make it more practical. If Jesus wouldn't go into that situation, we won't either. Or, 
If Jesus wouldn't partake in that activity, we're not there. We are not our own. We're followers of Christ. So this is obedience to Christ. This is submission to the Lordship of Christ. And what a picture of submission is built into our minds and hearts through expository preaching. For the demoniac was rescued from legion, legions of demons, and it looked like something. His rescue looked like something in Luke chapter 8 when he was delivered from that. Verse 35 of Luke chapter 8, they came to Jesus and found the man who had, from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That's a picture of submission. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, looking up into his eyes, listening to his words. It's a picture of submission. I'm listening to him. I'm not listening to lies. I'm not following my own ideas. I'm not just so far away from Him because of life or because of doubts or for any number of reasons. I'm mean, just so far away of Him that He's so distant from me at this point, I can't hear His voice anymore. No. I'm, I just want to sit at His feet. I'm in the book. I'm hearing His preachers preach His words and His ways. I'm sitting at His feet. I'm listening to His word like we'll get too soon, like Mary of old. So, are you sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to the Word? I think this is all wrapped up in what it means to follow Him. So, I ask the question, what areas of your life are you putting your fingers in your ears and you're not willing to listen? Following Jesus is not easy. We've unpacked the reality of true discipleship. There's three connected realities. They're definitely connected. Number one, it's self-denial. Number two, it's suffering. And number three, it's submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting. I'll go quickly. The first two, self-denial and taking up your cross daily, those really have the Greek tense of kind of a once-for-all mindset, whereas the third one of following Him is a present tense ongoing activity. I think the emphasis of that is that in discipleship of Christ, there's a mindset that we take in, a once-for-all settled mindset that we renew daily that then fuels our following. Okay, so you are to see that the mindset of self-denial, the mindset of taking up your cross daily leads to and fuels submission to the Lordship of Jesus, obeying His words. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is maybe not in this world standard a good salesman, but I think we're going to change our tune here because in a way, for true believers who are struggling, He does mean to encourage us. He does mean to unpack this for us. He does mean to motivate us. And so our second question this morning is, why does true discipleship look like this? Why does true discipleship look like this? And there's three connected reasons to challenge and encourage us about coming after Jesus, 
about true discipleship. Now you have to really think. This is meant to encourage us. Number one, the first reason is why true discipleship looks like this is because of biblical reality. Put on your seatbelts. Because of biblical reality. Notice in your text, and this would be fun to diagram, four, one verse, next verse, four, third verse, four. Three realities, three reasons. Do you see it? The reasons, the fours in that. So Christ is so gracious to encourage us with these things. Number one, He wants us to know biblical reality. Why, why is it this way? Because of biblical reality. Because this is, listen, this is the true path. Look at verse 24. For, here's a reason. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, as we go through these three reasons, we're going to see and we're going to tease out, oh, look at that. There is the obstacle to true discipleship. There's going to be not only motivation and reason, but we're going to tease out three, uh, three obstacles along the way that will keep us for the first time and every day from following Jesus. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Number one, because of biblical reality. It is the true path. Now, we could preach ten sermons on this. So let me just make it clear and quick. The whole of the Word of God, the whole of the plan of God, the whole biblical reality from Genesis to Revelation is suffering before glory. It's absolutely everywhere. Hold on to that thought. And the human being in the flesh will not have any part of it. So a human being locked in sin desires self, to save yourself, to protect yourself, to preserve yourself, to focus on yourself. But what Jesus is saying, if you go along the path of protecting and preserving yourself, here's the biblical reality, you're going to lose yourself. Yes, it's going to be fun for... 40 years, but then you will lose your life. But whoever loses his life, now watch this, for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So here's the biblical truth. To give up your life, your plans, your purposes, and even if perhaps your physical life for the sake of Christ, this is the one who in the end, future tense, will actually save his or her life. That is biblical reality. It's a paradox, but it's biblical reality. We all, as human beings, we desire fulfillment. We all desire joy. We all desire purpose. But here is the irony. Here's the biblical reality. You've got to give up your own desires. You've got to give up your own joys. You've got to give up your own purposes, your own agenda for the sake of Christ and follow Him. And then in Christ, you will find real joy and that eternally. Real purpose and that eternally. Real pleasure and that eternally. You will find your own soul. That is, you will find eternal life. That is a biblical reality. 
And it's so hard for disciples to understand. It's so hard for these disciples to understand. We already know Peter said, who do you say that I am? He's the Christ of God. He's the conquering king. He's the son of man who will come in glory and establish his kingdom. That's the glory. Then Jesus pulls out the rugs with biblical reality and says, let me tell you something. There is suffering before glory. I must. It is necessary. And are we greater than our master? We will walk the same path as he is. This is what this passage is saying. It's suffering before glory. You say, where's the glory? Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man, there he is, will be ashamed of him when he comes. Future. When he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels, there it is. It's not yet. There is suffering before glory. It's a biblical reality. It is the true path of every saint and the Son of Man himself. And it will be our path. It is the true path. But they didn't get it. But I'll tell you, Brothers and sisters, it is the plan of God. It is biblical reality. And Jesus is trying to encourage us with this reason. It's no strange thing that is happening to us. We shouldn't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among us. This is the biblical reality. We are not greater than our master. Worldwide church, I don't know if you're listening. Hear me on this. The health wealth and prosperity gospel is not biblical it is not the true path there is suffering before glory but it's supposed to be encouraging because this is the way of the master this is his path and we are to follow him Now, of course, the obstacle then that we discover in this first reason is in verse 24, is attempting to save your own life. Did you notice that? If that's the obstacle, it's you. And it's, so it's tied in to the earlier three realities. The obstacle to true discipleship is self. It's selfishness. It undermines true discipleship at every corner. Selfishness and self is the great enemy to the Christian life. And so by the Spirit, dear brother and sister, we are putting down self. We must deny ourselves. Our own way must go. It's got to go. It's got to go. Is there an aspect of your life where you want to have your own way and you won't let it go for the sake of Christ? Let it go. Because number one, it's the biblical reality of suffering before glory. It is the true path. Number two, and Jesus gets more encouraging, but more challenging. Get ready. I'm going there to the verse that you think is your favorite verse. Number two, and and this is tricky, so the second connected reason to encourage us to come after Jesus is number two, because of basic reason. 
put on your thinking cap. Jesus says, think about it. Following Jesus is the best path. Yes, it's the true path, but he wants us to think about it. It is the best path. Verse 25, four, second reason, another four. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This verse I've used for 25 years as a Christian in evangelism. It's always convicted me. So I finally, I think I understand a little bit more what it means. Let me share that with you. The words that are used here in verse 25, profit and gain and losing and forfeiting, they're all financial terms in the Greek text. Financial business terms. Okay, hold that thought. So he's thinking money here. Got that? Got that in your mind? So I want you to now listen carefully. Don't let me lose you. If you make a bad business deal and you suffer loss, you forfeit stuff, right? Are you tracking with me? That's the forfeit here or suffering loss. So I think the actor Matt Damon, I heard that he missed out on $250 million when he turned down the opportunity to play Sully in the movie Avatar. $250 million. That's a loss. Okay, let me... In the year 1962, a band called the Beatles were invited to audition after a man named Smith heard them play at a bar. The Beatles played 15 songs during that audition, but the studio executives said, quotes, guitar groups are on the way out, end quotes. And the Beatles were rejected. Or it's the year 1999, and there's a little company called Google, little company, that a small internet company could have purchased for $750,000 what we, about what we owe on the building. No thanks. Now Google has a market value of over $1 trillion. Bad business decision. That's where Jesus is going. He says, use your brain. I want you to think about it. I want you to use some basic reason here. Listen carefully. Can you imagine that? Jesus is appealing to common sense. Now listen, what if you did make $250 million starring in one movie? What if you're one of the most popular bands ever to play in American or European history? What if your company was worth $3 trillion right now? What would it profit you if for 40 years all three of those are yours? But at the end... Your soul is judged by the glorious coming of Christ. And your soul at the very end is reunited with your body. And you're thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever without end. He's wanting us to use our minds, to use some basic reason. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
How valuable then is your soul? You ever think about that? Your eternal soul. Compared to the house that will burn. The cars that are pathetic and rust. And thrown on the heap. Your money that will be gone. Naked you have come in this world. Naked you will return. You'll take nothing with you. No one in this room will ever cease to exist. No one in this room, kids, listen to me, you will always live in that sense. You will never cease to exist. You had a beginning, but your soul has no end. Your soul will live on. Jesus is saying, listen, the best path, let me... The best path is the path of eternal pleasures at my right hand. The best path is the new heavens and the new earth. It's the path of future glory. It's worth giving anything for, for you now. The exceeding value of the eternal soul. I think of Barbara Germanson right now. A follower of Jesus Christ. She did not have the happiness of a, a great marriage. She did not have the pleasures of a huge home. Or a massive bank account. She did not have the privilege of good health. She had not gained really from the human perspective very much in this world. But she has not lost her soul. She is face to face with Jesus Christ. She is just fine. She is in glory. She is with Jesus. I wish Whitney Houston would have felt this verse, and I hope that she did. I wish Robin Williams, when he was in that closet, would have felt this verse. I wish my good friend from chiropractic school would feel this verse and think through the spirit of the living God. Oh, brothers and sisters, Jesus is appealing to our basic reason. Kids, listen to me. I don't care what your friends say in your career magazines or anything like that. Following Jesus is the best path. And there is an obstacle here to true discipleship. It is gaining the world. Underneath that desire to gain the world is greediness. It is a thorn for true discipleship. It will choke out true discipleship. May we release in this church and as individuals the love of money and comfort and things. May we believe that the love of money is indeed the root of all kinds of evil. May we believe we cannot serve both God and... May we believe it. May we believe that godliness with contentment is great gain. And just how great a gain is it? Perhaps Jesus is a little better salesman than I thought as we come to this last reason as we move into the transfiguration passage. We see His glory. It leads me to the final reason. The third connected reason to encourage us to come after Jesus. First, because it's of biblical reality. It's the true path. Second, because of basic reason. It is the best path. And third, encouragement. To come after Jesus because of His bodily return. It is the victory path. It is the victory path. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me 
and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So, a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's really easy in this culture, come on, I'll admit it if you will, that we're afraid of so many things and so many people And the fear of man is the obstacle to true discipleship in this last one. It leads to shame. So we shut up our mouths and we're ashamed of the words of Christ and the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He's warning us here. He's warning us. And it's all of us can relate. Maybe it's family for some of us, friends, next-door neighbors, co-workers. His words are out there. Jesus is out there, and they don't like His words, and they don't like Him. And we begin to lose sight of the big picture, of the glory to come, and the cost of following Jesus. And instead, self begins to kick in, and usually it's connected to money, the second obstacle. And the fear of man is on full display, and we can become right? In any given moment, ashamed of one like a son of man. And he's saying this, and it's a warning. The fear of man is the enemy of following Jesus Christ. Be warned. If you, as a pattern of of life, say, "I, I love Jesus and I'm believing in Him, but you distance yourself from Jesus and His words. You will not follow Him closely. And you as a pattern are ashamed of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in the second coming, He will be ashamed of you and you will forfeit your soul. The Apostle John says the same in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears... We may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Jesus is coming in glory in the future to judge the world. He's going to win in history, and He's going to be worth it. And instead, what He's calling His disciples, instead of being bound by the fear of man so that we're ashamed of Christ, may we we be released from the fear of man. Release yourself from the fear of man and put your faith in Jesus. Instead, be compelled by hope that the, uh, has set your mind and heart on the glory that will be revealed to us at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He's going to build on this. He's not going to let this go. He doesn't want to just say, don't be ashamed. No, He wants to stir up faith. And so He goes in to this passage on the transfiguration. He shows us His glory and He says, set your eyes upon my glory because there's glory that is beyond imagination coming at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a warning here in this third reason. Certainly there is, but there ought to be worship here. There should be hope for when He comes in glory in the glory of the Father and the heavenly angels, you, dear believer, are going to have glory coming. The coming of Christ is the hope of the church. And I want you to see this as we wrap up this morning. Turn to 2nd, and Bobby read it, so turn to 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1. 
Now, as I read this, I think it's going to mean more now because all of the themes of the preaching of Christ about true discipleship are found in this passage, and you'll see them right there as we read. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For, after all, now look at the difference between those who are ashamed at His coming and those who have hope in His coming. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when will that relief come? That rest, it could be translated, come. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God would count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is glory coming at the second coming of Christ. It is relief for you. It is rest. It is relationship in the presence of Christ, glorified with Christ, marveling at Jesus for all those who have come after Jesus. This is their future. Who is this for? Paul says it this way. It's for all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And let me tell you what saving faith looks like. True discipleship includes self-denial, suffering, and submission to Jesus. Because of biblical reality, it is the true path. Because of basic reason, it is the best path. And because of the bodily return of Christ... It is the victory path. Brothers and sisters, there are enemies of following Christ that are keeping many in this room from coming to Jesus for the first time. And those enemies are still going after our soul. As we follow Christ, may we be daily aware of the enemies of selfishness, greed, and the fear of man. January 8th, marked the death of 28-year-old missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, along with the death of four other missionary partners and friends of his. 
Jim Elliott and his partners were encouraged in Ecuador, in South America. They wanted to reach out to the Aka Indians in South America, a small tribe, a fierce tribe of unreached people. And they were so encouraged in their initial efforts and some actual friendly encounters with them. In fact, to the point where they were able to land the plane not far from the tribe and build a little bit of a home base on the Curare River. But as the men attempted further contact on January 8th, 1956, the men on the beach of that river, hoping for more opportunities for future contact to be able to share the gospel with that tribe, all of the men were deceived, flanked, surrounded, and speared to death by ten Aka warriors. The wives of these five men, the wives, took up their cross, pressed on, even with children holding to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians. Many of those ten that speared them to death became born-again Christians and leaders in a new church to the Aka Indians. Is that a reasonable sacrifice for Jim Elliott, the young family? For Nate Saint, seven years earlier, Jim Elliott, after graduating from Wheaton College, preparing to travel to bring the gospel to Ecuador, wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let us pray. And as I pray, I felt led to pray a a prayer from a wonderful little book I would recommend called The Valley of Vision. And may this, as I pray this prayer, be our closing prayer today. And then we'll, we'll sing together. Bow your heads and pray with me from that book, Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my humiliation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.